look at God's word together. I would love it if you would pray with me before we do that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the privilege that it is to worship here in this school. God, even when the technology is not exactly what it could be, it's because we get to be here. We get to be in this school and to, to come in here and pray for your presence to be here with us during this worship service, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would remain in this place after we leave these doors and that it would make a difference for these kids as they come to learn, the faculty, the staff, and, and their families of all the kids as well. So God, we thank you for that opportunity and we pray that you'd be speaking to us today through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I know some of you maybe are just meeting me for the first time. Like I said, my name is Stephanie and I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't been here for a couple weeks because my husband and I went on a trip to Uganda for a couple weeks, which was an amazing adventure, an amazing experience. And like anybody who just went on a trip to the other side of the world, who's then given a microphone, I'm going to tell you some stories about that today, if that's okay. <laughs> it's almost like not possible to not, or whatever. So there'll be some stories uh, going along with the conversation we've been having. But it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, my husband and I, I wrote this down. Okay, we spent 350 hours straight together, okay? And we traveled, we think, 18,000 mile, 18, miles by plane and by bus and by ferry over the Nile. That was amazing. We slept in 10 locations in 13 nights and we're still married. Right? Yes. We came home, we got home, and two hours later, it was our anniversary, two years. So we've made it two years and all that. So that's a big deal. We're very grateful. But obviously, um, trying to see if we should stay married was not the point of the trip. Um, we, we both feel very called to, uh, to tell stories that matter and to be people who bear witness to what God's doing uh, next door, across the street, around our city, and around the world. That's part of our calling um, as individuals, and now part of what brought us together. Um, there were even hints of that in our online dating profiles, but that's another story. But we saw that in each other, and it's been amazing to adventure together in that way. But it's about bearing witness to what God's doing, and so that's why partly I want to tell some of the stories. Um, I've heard this quote that only 20% of the world's population travels more than five miles a radius around the spot that they were born in. Now, most of you traveled five miles like two days after you were born going home from the hospital, so 20%, I mean, that's incredible. So the opportunity that we have to, to be able to travel and to see what God's doing is not something that should be kept to ourselves. At least that's not what we believe. And so it's a real, when I say it's a privilege, that's what I mean. It is because of privilege that we get to do that. Um, so I, I would say that there was a lot of ways that we were impacted by the leaders in Uganda. Um, that was this, the part of East Africa that we were in. We traveled all over Uganda, but there were two things that I would say were the deepest impact for us we're just a week after the trip, so maybe there'll be other things later, but there were two things that really stick out. The first is that we had an unexplainable, I can't even explain it, opportunity to be present when a village, that, like the ones that Kelsey just described, actually got clean water, like that moment, the moment that they put the hand pump on and water came out for the first time. And I don't even have words to explain to you how powerful it was to see people who had never experienced clean water be able to have clean water and how big of a difference that it makes the way that Kelsey described, especially for the women, some of who are, are victims, many of whom are victims of sexual violence while they travel six kilometers to get water. And so this was a huge deal. Um, we have a website, jdandsteph.com, and I made a, a, a podcast, like an audio recording of that moment. So if you want to listen to it, I'd be so honored because it was incredible for me to record that moment of seeing people get clean water for the first time. 
Um, and I, my commitment to Team World Vision is that if you join the team, I will run with you at least once in the miles b- below five miles, okay? So I'm in there, I'm for you, it's gonna be great. Um, but I do, I actually love supporting Team World Vision that way, we support a child in Uganda actually from Team World Vision. So the second thing that was the most impactful for us was visiting Bidi Bidi refugee camp. This is a refugee camp on the border of South Sudan and Uganda. It is the second largest refugee camp in the world right now, 300,000 people are living there. They're exiled from South Sudan where there is uh, a lot of tension and a lot of fighting that's going on. And at the core of the fighting is ethnic tension. There are tribes of people, many different tribes in Uganda, many tribes in South Sudan. And there's ethnic tension happening and fighting between these different groups of people. And, you know, mix in some things with the government and stuff. But at the core, it's about ethnic tension and ethnic violence that's creating a space where people are having to flee for safety. And so in Uganda, we see 300,000 people just in that one camp. And Uganda as a whole has over a million people who are um, refugees from South Sudan and other parts of the world. And so this was a huge impact to us. Um, And interestingly enough, not really the fact that this was such a huge crisis, because we had done some of our homework. We knew we were going to see what we saw. We knew about the crisis. We knew what we were facing. The thing that impacted us was how many people we got to meet who were peacemakers. How many people we got to meet who they've given their whole life, South Sudanese people and Ugandan people, to being peacemakers in their context. Even just the fact that Uganda is one of the most welcoming countries to people who are fleeing violence in their country. They welcome more refugees right now than probably any other country when you look at it for the size of how big Uganda is. And that was amazing. We met um, a guy named Reverend Samuel who's starting a vocational technical institute to train people in in different uh, trades who have grown up in the trauma of this violence of this war people who are almost paralyzed by the trauma that they've experienced. And so he takes vocational training and he couples it with counseling and healing. And he says, it turns out when people heal, they can be productive. And so he's doing this work to train people so that they can be productive in their space. It's incredible the work that he's doing. We got to meet a group of people who've been a part of um, trying to essentially rescue these victims of child soldiers. You've maybe heard about this, where people would be abducted when they're little boys and trained to be soldiers. Well, most of those resistance armies and stuff are not functioning anymore, but there's still people who are now kind of exiled from their families, and they're living in the African bush and in the jungle. And so there's people who are sending helicopters, you guys, this is crazy, with recordings of moms, any Ugandan moms, who are saying into these recordings, come home. We miss you. We love you. Come home. And these guys will come out of the bush who feel like they were, if they came home, they would be punished for the crimes of being a, a violent soldier, even though that was something that they were manipulated into doing. Crazy. Final story I'll tell you is about the Leadership Academy of South Sudan. We got to meet this group of people who are starting this college-age academy for leadership in South Sudan. It was amazing. And what they're doing is bringing together young adults, training them college, college material, But in addition to that, they're housing them in little houses where six to seven, eight people live. And every person that lives in each house is from a different tribe. And so these young adults are being an example to their community of saying, yes, we are different. Our cultures are beautiful. Our ethnic backgrounds are different. But we are brothers and sisters. And I met some of these students, and they said that when they are living there, it's it's in their head that God has made them brothers and sisters because of Jesus. 
but living together is what helps them believe it. And living together is what helps them live out what it means to be family, to really experience Jesus as the peace between them in their war-torn country. So there's a million stories I could tell you about that, but when I think about those students, this is what really just it captured my heart for the conversation we've been having here as we're going through this time of Lent. Our theme for Lent this year is Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. We've been looking at Ephesians 2, and that's what we're going to look at again today. There's this message that Paul had for these young churches, and these young churches have been through a lot, through persecution, through so many things. But here in Ephesians 2, there's a, perhaps the biggest strife and tension that they're facing, and that is here in, in example, this example is ethnic tension. It's still this reality. They're, they're fighting between the Jews and the Gentiles. This ethnic tension is a reality. I've heard it said that when it comes to the, the history of humanity, there's been more bloodshed and violence and death due to ethnic hatred and racial tensions than any other source of conflict in history. So if you just think about history for a second, you can see there's some other dynamics mixed in there. But it doesn't take long to say maybe this is true. And here in Ephesians 2, Paul's speaking right at that subject right at the subject of the ethnic divides that are dividing people who are all trying to follow Yahweh and all trying to be people of the way of Jesus. And so he's pretty direct here. He says some pretty direct things. And, and if I were to sum up what he's saying, he's saying that diversity is celebrated by God, but unity in diversity is what God desires. And that God is the one who's removing the barriers that are so often between us when it comes to ethnicity and culture that this is something that God is doing. This is a, a theme that Paul talks about in almost every letter to every church. This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. We see uh, God telling Abraham that you and the people of Israel are going to be a blessing to the whole world, to every nation, right? And, and throughout different parts of Scripture, in Isaiah, for instance, we see pictures of all nations streaming towards the temple of God, representing all nations coming towards God. We see uh, the, the, the words that we'll see echoed today in Isaiah, echoed it here in Ephesians, of God being a God who brings peace to everybody, no matter how far or how close. This is who God is. And so, of course, then, we see in the big story of God this final kind of moment in Revelation 7 when this great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language are standing before the throne of God and the Lamb, and it says that they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see how this is just an important thread throughout all of Scripture? And here we're going to dig into what Paul's saying specifically in Ephesians 2. So if you have a Bible, you can pull that up. Uh, this is Paul's heart for these people. We'll have it up on the screen. A couple weeks ago, um, Michael talked about how Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's in prison because he allegedly, we're not sure if it happened or not, welcomed a Gentile person in to the temple past a large wall that was supposed to separate the Gentiles from the Jewish people and brought a Gentile into the place where the Jewish people were worshiping. And in this wall, we have historical reference that this, these walls said, keep out Gentiles, punishment for crossing is death. There's historical record that these signs existed on this type of wall in the temple in Jerusalem. And so Paul's in prison because allegedly he is trying to bring the Gentiles and Jews together even in the place of worship. And so I'm going to read for you Ephesians 2, just verse 11 through 18, and you can follow along on the screen. Notice here the way that Paul is directly speaking to this tension. Therefore, 
Remember formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's quoting Isaiah there. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace of those who you were near. For through him, we both, both groups, have access to the Father by one spirit. I think maybe the most important thing we can notice about Paul's language here is the contrasts. The contrasts that, that he's making really clear, it's God's action that makes the difference. So it's those of you who were far away are now brought near. Something that was broken, these relationships, is now made whole. That, that there have people who have been excluded who are now a part of God's family. This people who are far away are near is done by Jesus being peace. It's about God's action in this way. Paul's reminding these Gentile believers that they were once outside of relationship with God. In verse 11, there's this language about the people who are called the circumcised and the uncircumcised. I have absolutely no interest in getting into the details of circumcision today at all. However, what we're noticing here is that it was a way in which there was a talk about who's in and who's out when it comes to a relationship with God. And here, Paul is saying this is actually used as a derogatory term. People were saying these are the people who are, are called the uncircumcised. This is a derogatory term, and Paul's calling that out here. And the language surrounding it, he's saying, not okay. And he's also saying, clearly through the passage, that that's not a requirement anymore for people to be able to come close to God. And then in verse 12, he talks to the Gentiles specifically, this group of people who have felt separate. He said, you felt separate from God. You were not included in God's promises. You didn't feel like you were a part of God's family. You didn't have access to God. You were people who were far from who God is. And what I want to point out today is this could be our reality. Like this could be who we are without Jesus and the fact that Jesus removed the barrier between us and God through his death and resurrection, what we're celebrating this Easter, we would be far from God. We wouldn't feel connected in God's family. We wouldn't know the hope that comes from a relationship with God and the promise from God that God will always be with us. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, a reconciliation between us and God. But then Paul's going even further to say he also accomplished on the cross a reconciliation between brothers and sisters across ethnic lines. This is specifically what this passage is about. So without what Jesus did, we would miss out on being forgiven. We would miss out on this promise of God being with us, the promise of salvation and being in God's family. This is what he's saying here. And we would also miss out on the relationships with brothers and sisters from many different cultures who are all brought together to be invited in God's family, to be diverse and to be different, yet have unity at the same time. This is part of this invitation. Let me read verse 14 again. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, the law, and it, with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, 
thus making peace, and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Do you hear that vertical reconciliation between them and God and then the horizontal reconciliation between people groups? Jesus has destroyed the barrier, it says, the wall of hostility. What does this mean? Okay, it, it is actually not talking about borders of countries. That's an important thing to note. If we wanted to talk about things like uh, immigration policies and borders of nations, we'd have to look other places in scripture. What Paul's talking about here is a metaphorical concept of things that are often unseen, but are still huge barriers between groups of people. And he's specifically talking about, I mean, there's many barriers between groups of people, but he's specifically talking about the barriers that come from ethnicity and culture and different understandings of that. And here, he's specifically saying there's these barriers between these specific groups of people, and Jesus is removing these things. Now, some scholars do think that Paul's giving a nod to the wall that I mentioned earlier, the one with those signs on it that said, keep out. However, the people in Ephesus would have not ever seen that wall. It would not have been something that would have been in the forefront of their mind. So if Paul's kind of giving a nod to that, that's not his main point. His main point here is to talk specifically about the, the, and emphasize the emotional, relational, and cultural barriers that keep them from relationship. This is what he means by the barriers that need to be torn down. It's really interesting to pay attention to the fact that the people here are confusing what God wants with what is cultural. And so what God is saying here and what, what, the, what the early church is trying to say is that some of these ceremonial laws are cultural and they're not to be applied at this point anymore to everybody so that the Jews and the Gentiles can come together and worship. Things like circumcision, things like a wall separating people in worship. You can now worship together, things like that. He's trying to make it very clear. So if I was to sum up what Paul's trying to say and how we can take meaning from it today, I think this is what he's saying. The barriers and hostility that Jesus is tearing down are what prevent us from having relational access with God and with each other. The barriers and hostility that Paul is saying Jesus is tearing down are what prevents us from having relational access with God and relational access that we give to other people. Those are the barriers that need to be removed. And we struggle with this today. The barriers are different than the ones that the people were experiencing here in the first century, of course. But it brings to our context the question, what are the barriers for us? Some of them are obvious, like language. But there are more and more barriers that we don't always see that are there. And what we hear Paul saying is that Jesus is peace. And the peace is what is removing the barriers. Peace is not just an absence of conflict. That's really important. Peace, uh, the word that he's using there in Greek, is hearkening the Hebrew word shalom. This idea of safety, of, of wholeness, of love, of trust of a sense of all the wrong things between us being made right. And so you know you have shalom or this type of fullness of peace with somebody when you feel safe, when you feel loved, when you feel a sense of wholeness, and it feels more complete when they're there than when they're not. Can you think about relationships in your life where you just feel like things are right when they're there? What Paul is saying is that can be true even across ethnic barriers, that sense of wholeness and that sense of peace. So here's the, the, the thing I hope you remember. You can put it on the screen, Roland. Jesus removes barriers to peace with God and with others. And what I think we're going to see here is that he invites us to join in. Jesus removes barriers to peace with God and others and invites us to join in. It's interesting because reconciliation is what Paul's talking about here. Uh, it's both kind of destructive and then reconstructive. 
Like something has to be torn down in order to be built up. And most of us don't like that tearing down part. That doesn't feel fun. That means we have to unlearn some things or something that we thought maybe isn't true and we have to wrestle with that. But the barrier has to be torn down in order for us to be built up in this unity. And I know that it doesn't always seem like the hostility between groups of people has been put to death, right? The story I just told you about South Sudan would suggest that there is still enmity or hostility uh, to the point of extreme violence that comes from these ethnic tensions. However, what Jesus did by removing those barriers means that we can choose to actually cross that line. We can actually choose to enter into relationship. We can make that choice. And that's what inspired me so much about those people in Uganda is that they were choosing, they were making the choice to cross those lines and to be people who are peacemakers, even when that was super countercultural, even when that was dangerous, and even when it was something that they didn't always know what they were doing next, but they were trying to follow God in the best way possible to be peacemakers, not just to be peacekeepers to try to keep an absence of conflict, but to be peacemakers who are stepping into this. And it really was incredible. When I saw what they were doing, I thought about how they're choosing to join Jesus in removing those barriers, and we all get the chance to say in our context, very different than the context that I visited, but in our context, how do we choose to, get, to tear down those barriers and to step intentionally into relationship? We get to do that. I think that I want to encourage us to, the term I'm going to use is flip the script when it comes to uh, reconciliation and engaging with people who are different than us. I think that sometimes it's been something that feels like a burden that we have to do instead of a, an opportunity that we get to join in. And I want us to flip that and say, this is an opportunity that we have. It's not easy, but it's an opportunity. I got to know a lot of kids while I was in Uganda. We went to five different schools, but I brought a picture of one girl who I really connected with. Her name is Nadia, and she is the head girl at her school. They have a head girl and a head boy. It was really cute. And so that meant she gave a little speech when we came, and it was really awesome. And so I went and talked to her, and we really connected. And I had made a little um, uh, slideshow of pictures on my phone to show the kids in Uganda what it's like in Minnesota. And so I was showing them pictures of snow and things like that, and uh, Nadia is looking wide-eyed at these pictures on my screen. And she was in awe of the, the snowbank that was a little bit taller than me that I took a picture of right before I left. <laughs> it's melted now, miraculously. And then she was just like, could not believe it. There's a video of my brother scraping snow off my mom's roof and like four foot icicles. But I wasn't ready for her to be in awe of some of the pictures of me and my friends. I scrolled through the pictures and there was a picture of me and one of my best friends, Joe, who's Nigerian. And when Nadia saw that picture, she said, oh my, she's black. <laughs> And I was so, I was just shocked that she said that. I said, well, yeah, she's from Nigeria. And then I kept flipping through the pictures, and there was a picture of some of my other friends who are African-American or who are African, some people who are Latino, people who are uh, people of different backgrounds, Asian backgrounds, and she was in awe. And she looked at a couple of those women of color, and she said, look at, like, to Joe, who's Nigerian, and she said, she's beautiful. And I said, Nadia, she looks like you. You're beautiful. And I got to say that. You guys, it blew my mind how much of an opportunity she thought it was for me to have people in my life who are my friends of different races. It was like mind-blowing to her. I was one of the few white people she's ever met. She's got friends of different, um, of different tribes and different cultures, for sure. But she was just like, America is incredible. Look at your friends. 
And I drove away from that experience with her, and I was like, man, I am going to have a completely different perspective and, and opportun of the opportunity that I have to engage in relationships with people that are different than me and to be friends with people because that's been really hard. It's been really hard to work through those friendships and the differences that I have. And as I drove away, I'm thinking about this, and I'm not trying to minimize the struggle. We've got a racial struggle here. And she knew about that, actually. We talked about that. And I'm not trying to minimize that at all, but man, do I feel more motivated to be a person who, for my life, pursues cultural humility and intercultural competence. I feel more motivated for that, having seen what an opportunity she perceives me having, because I think she's right. I think I do have an opportunity in this way. So, how does Jesus remove the barriers? Three things we see. Verse 14, Jesus is peace. Verse 15, Jesus makes peace. He's a peacemaker. Verse 17, Jesus preaches peace or proclaims peace. Jesus is peace, makes peace, and proclaims peace. And I think we can see here in other passages where we're invited into the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5, we get to be people who join in this peace building and this peacemaking. We have this opportunity to do this with Jesus as our leader. So I just wrote some, some quick ideas that, that Roland and I will scroll through pretty quickly here. When it comes to Jesus being peace, he is peace, so he embodies peace. Here's the question I have for us. What does it look like to be people who embody peace in our lives? Number one, I think it looks like people who pray for peace. Looks like people who pray for opportunities to be in relationship with people who are different than us. Every single person who I know who has taken it to sincere prayer that God would bring somebody in their life to be a soul friend who is across different ethnic or racial lines, every person that I know, God has answered that prayer. My friendship with Joe was an answer to prayer to the point where when I met her, I actually started crying because I knew that it was the moment that God was answering my prayer. And it wasn't something that I did. God had to do it. So do we pray? The second thing, embodying peace, listening well. Being people who are listening without wondering what we're going to say next, but actually just fully listening to people and their experience. I think we embody peace, third, when we confess. Last week, Pastor Mike led us through this experience. And if you weren't here, you can actually just be led through it on the podcast of confessing. When we notice bias in ourselves, when we notice ways in which we're falling short of who God's calling us to in Ephesians 2, we can confess that and we can be healed. And that makes us people who embody peace. And then the last thing I put is just a, a ministry of peaceful presence. Can we be people who, as we embody peace, go to just be with people? So often, especially in majority culture, we want and we hope for people who are different to come to us. But what does it look like for us to go and to be with them? I have a long list of churches that are uh, multi-ethnic or who are majority a culture that's different than anyone here. And I would love to share it with you so you can go and worship with them. Some of us, even today, Tanya and I are going to go to worship with Destino Covenant Church, which is a church that is multi-ethnic because there's 16 cultures of different Latin American countries in that one church. And so we're going to go there today and worship with them this afternoon. I would love to give you that list. Second, Jesus is a peacemaker. What does it look like for us to be peacemakers? Well, first we have to let go of the idea that we're going to be peacekeepers because that's just trying to avoid conflict. Being a peacemaker actually means working through conflict. The first thing I have is just active learning. Sometimes it feels like a conflict in yourself when you 
learn things that you didn't realize, and you're like, man, I'm in my 30s or my 40s. I'm learning this for the first time. Oh my gosh, it's a little bit difficult. But what does that active learning look like for every one of us? It turns out, as ignorance between cultures lowers, peace builds. As ignorance lowers, peace builds. And that is an active thing. The second thing I put for being a peacemaker is to make space and to give access to your life the way that Paul is saying we get to do. I think for some of us, some of the barriers we need to tear down is that we've got so much going on in our nuclear family and in maybe our little world that mostly surrounds us that we don't actually have space for the access of these new relationships that take time and energy and prayer. That's something to consider. Maybe it's as small as choosing to have lunch with a coworker. Maybe it's as small as not looking at your phone during a soccer game and getting to know another parent who has a different background. It could be that small. And then third, take the first step. Take the first step in relationship. It takes courage. Guys, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes when I'm so confident and I get into certain situations and it's like I just have social anxiety. And I'm a very, ex, ex, you know, extra person who's very, like, loves people and loves to be around people. I'm very extroverted, but there's moments where I feel that anxiety, and that's okay. So we have to have courage to take steps and be the one to take the first step. Okay, finally, Jesus proclaims peace. When he proclaims peace, I think what's happening here is that he's not only embodying it, but he's living it out actively. It says he's preaching peace. Of course, he does that with his words. So maybe, first of all, we can use our voice. We can use our voice. Sometimes when words are used as barriers between people, we can point that out, especially in the relationships that, where we're close with other people. It's the most uh, nerve-wracking, isn't it, to engage in those hard conversations with people that you love when you need to call out some of those words that are not peace-building? But that could be the most important space that we do it. And then finally, to let our life speak. The only way that any community becomes more diverse is if there's interpersonal friendships between people in that community of people who are different than them. That's how it works. And when that happens, our life begins to speak. How does our life speak about where our time and our money goes in order to proclaim peace? What does it look like for us to proclaim peace with what we post online or not? This is what it looks like for our lives to proclaim peace. And one day at a time, we can proclaim peace and I think that if we proclaim that and let our, let our life speak, wouldn't that be really distinctly different in our world if we were people who proclaimed peace with our life across the barriers that we so often see? I think that this is the promise that God has for us, this idea of unity and diversity, but I think it's really hard. And for me, when I feel uh, overwhelmed or tired, for me, I like to remember that promise of that future hope in Revelation 7 of all these people coming together from every tribe and nation and language worshiping together. And that reminds me that it's worth it. As the worship team comes back up, I want to tell just one final story that I think kind of exemplifies what I'm talking about. This, this thing that helps me remember and keeps me motivated to remember the opportunity that Nadia helped me see. When I was a little girl, I remembered that my dad was part of helping the, the team for the evangelist Billy Graham uh, shared the good news of Jesus with people all over the world. And Mr. Graham and my dad are not with us anymore. And I have both kind of celebrations and tensions from the, the mass evangelism movement in my experience, but the reality is, is that that meant that as a little girl, I got to travel all over the world. And I can't tell you how much of a privilege that was and how much that shaped me and how this is a, such a significant part of my spiritual heritage. And I remember this one trip, I was 13 years old and we were in Puerto Rico. 
and we were in San Juan, and the newest technology at the time uh, back then was this satellite technology, and what was going to happen is Mr. Graham was going to give his sermon, and it was going to be broadcast on satellites to 165 countries in the world live. This is going to be the single farthest reaching broadcast that ever happened, okay? And so we were in San Juan, and Mr. Graham is preaching, and then there's a, a person interpreting in Spanish, of course, to the people who are there from San Juan. And so next to the baseball stadium, there's a basketball stadium. And during one of those uh, broadcasts, my dad came up to me and my brother, and he said, you need to come with me. And he had tears in his eyes. And I'm thinking, oh, no, something's wrong. And he brings us into the basketball stadium, and he brings us into a sound booth. And he says, listen. And he pushes a button. And when he pushed the button, you could hear Mr. Graham preaching. And, and you could hear the Spanish interpreter after each statement, he would pause, and then the person would interpret it in Spanish. And then my dad pushed another button. And when the interpreter began to speak in Spanish, now you also heard Swahili. And then he pushed another button, and you heard Portuguese. And another button, and you heard German. And he kept on going, language after language after language, because there were 150 booths of interpreters who were simultaneously translating Mr. Graham's sermon into each language as it was being broadcast around the world. And as he was doing that and he was preaching, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Of course, these words from John 3, 16 and 17 that he preaches every single time. Some of you recognize that bellow of his voice. You can imagine it in your head. That God loved everyone. That whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. That God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And as I heard all these languages as a 13-year-old, it was like the whole world was saying these words that I knew by heart. And the whole world was reminding me at that moment, this is what it looks like that Jesus meant everyone. This is a little picture of what it means that God loves the world and whoever, he meant whoever, could be in relationship with him. And that moment changed my life. And my dad leaned down in my brother's in my ear and he said, this is what heaven will sound like. And I thought about that and I thought about that verse. There's a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe and people and nation and language standing before the throne singing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is our peace. Our peace between him and our peace between each other. Even in this room, we have so many differences. But when we come to this table like you're all invited to do, we get to come and say, Jesus, we need you to be our peace so that we can be in relationship with you and each other. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. Just come down. We're going to have two lines. You're going to take the bread, dip it into the cup. We'll have people who can pray for you. It's gluten-free so everyone can participate. But if you are someone who's saying, I want Jesus to be my peace, I want Jesus to be the peace that makes it so I can be in relationship with God and each other. That's all you're saying when you come to receive this today, that Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. So as we sing these last couple of songs, come when you're ready.